Hello, boys. How are you doing today? I am doing great. This is a great day for me. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm all right. I am tired, and uh, spring was a week. That was it. Now we have rain and everything, but I'm doing good. That means summer, right? It, it means summer. Yeah, yeah, it does. So what have you guys been up to? I can start this time. I have been inspired by our Stream Deck episode with Gaia and was thinking about buying one, but then heard from Michael that he had his Stream Deck takeout. Then I mm. thought I could test it on my iPad and for a very little money every month. So I installed it on the Mac and then tried to set up different keys for my my systems. I'm trying to set up keys for the Finder and working with Tax. That's been quite successful for, for me. And using Obsidian, Zoom, Keynote, and all these programs that they can automatically switch to these keys when I open these programs. And that's working quite well for me, at least. I've Difficulties remembering all the shortcut keys, so um, maybe the visual cue can help me a bit. And I just started on using Keyboard Maestro also. That also looks quite nice. Man, that's a science project. <laughs> Such a rabbit hole. No, I, 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 Keyboard Maestro is a little bit uh, strange to set up, but mm. on the at least that's my experience on the uh, Stream Deck. But when you just realize how it works, because you need to find the columns and rows and things when you ma map a macro. But after that, it just works fine. I just It's fantastic. It's a super, super tool uh, together with the Stream Deck. So out of curiosity, Jens, yeah. uh, on, on the iPhone version of the Stream Deck, can you also change the icons and the same thing that you can on a normal Stream Deck? It seems like there's no difference in how the key is working and all that stuff. Cool. So then you can have a Retina display to for your Stream Deck. Yeah. Feels like I have an up upgrade project here. Is there a limit to the number of keys you can have on the iPad? Yeah, it's the middle normal 15 keys version. Uh, it's displaying. Okay. Can't you upgrade it? To... It seems that they only um, have one size. Okay, yeah. 640K is enough for anyone. <laughs> but uh, it is looking quite good, and I'm Continuing my DevonThink journey, it amazes me how, how much value you get from the DevonThink and being able to import Apple Notes, the mail, uh, files, and the search capabilities are amazing. So I'm smiling. All the way to the database. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Great. Good stuff. What about you, Martin? What about me? Well... I had this Danish person coming over to me and taking pictures under my desk, uh, <laughs> complaining about uh, my Mac Studio being placed on top of a paint bucket and having uh, cords all over the place. And if, by the way, if you want to see the pictures, you can just look at Michael's Twitter. That's where they are. <laughs> um, but now my Mac is not on a paint bucket anymore. It's on my desk and the cords is... With straps and, and double sticky tape and things, it looks super nice. It almost looks nicer under the desk than on top of the desk because <laughs> Michael is, is really good at, at organizing cords. So, so that I'm, Michael did most of the work because I'm still a little bit afraid of using my hand, especially when it's something that you may press or, or twist or do something. I'm not really allowed to do that yet. So he, he helped me, and that looks fabulous uh, it was fun when we were all done we were fibbling around with my stuff and we heard kadunk <laughs> when one of the the power strips the the, the double sticky tape wasn't good enough so <laughs> they fell down in the floor never buy double sticking tape in fluger no apparently no so but but you also bought glue right so i have put glue on them and now they stick so they will last forever they will never fall off so so that was something we did, and super happy for, for the help there, Michael. And I also upgraded my NAS, because as we all know, one gigabit per second is not enough. So 
I have a 10 gigabit card as Michael does in my mine ass here in the office now. And it is actually quicker, even though my one gigabit GBIC interface that I bought doesn't work and doesn't give me 10 gigabit in my That's what you get for going for the lowest price, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, as you all know, I don't need a switch. But I probably do. So <laughs> have you ordered about it? that? No, I haven't ordered it yet. Come on, man. If you're supposed to buy 10 gigabit GBIGs, they will cost approximately 3000 Yeah. each. So that's uh, six and to 8000 w- And you can get that switch with a double amount of ports for half the price. Yes, but then I don't use no, a but- GBIG. I, no. I want to have one. It's just you to have one. Have one. You have yeah, one. I have one, one, but it doesn't gigabit. work. <laughs> and you have one too, because you got that as a, as a present. I'm yeah. thinking actually to drill a hole in it and use it as a keyring. Oh yeah, just because I can. Uh, yeah, so that's a little bit what I've been up to, uh, and I've done a lot more things, but uh, that's the things that comes to mind <laughs> right now. And you, Michael, what have you been up to? Yeah, well, I started crashing your network. <laughs> yeah, you did that too. <laughs> uh, what is the Swedish expression for that? No one remembers a coward. What was it you said? Yeah, it was something like that. Let's just change the IPs. No one remembers a coward. And then two hours later, we got the network up again. <laughs> yeah. So what we did was that we built a uh, routed VPN. So we are now connected between all the firewalls, between the three locations that we have. Actually, the four locations that we have, because we have the data center in in her in Sweden. And then we have a backup center in uh, Fransborg. And then we have a site in Ringsted. So... We have left Dropbox. Yeah, we now have mm-hmm. our date on a NAS. I had a spare NAS because I made one purchase that was a little bit too small. And that one we put into Martin and Sylvia's kitchen. And you, yep. Martin, bought a lot of, was it the three 16 terabyte drives? It was uh, three 16 terabyte Iron Wolf disks because they were as cheap as any other 16 terabyte disks. So why not buy the right ones, the, the good yeah, ones? Exactly. So there we have 32 gigabit of storage, and you have how much on your NAS in the office? 10 usable. 10 usable. Yeah, Yeah, I think I have 12 or something on mine. So we have a lot of storage, and now we have backups running in Martin's kitchen in her in Sweden. It's pretty cool. It's awesome. And uh, we have shared folders and a completely closed infrastructure. I love it. Once we got it to work. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the work. There's only one thing we need to do now Mm -hmm. to test the backups to make sure that we can use them. (laughs) We need to do a restore. And who is the coward? Who will do the real drop of all the data and see if it restores? I I think there's other ways to do that. Yeah, well, you know. Don't you have a a leftover Mac we can use? Yeah, I have. You probably have like five laying around, like in the bookshelves, keeping the books up so they don't fall apart. I have two Mac minis that uh, that we could use that yeah but then we need to back them up first they're not included right now so (laughs) anyway everything is good and we have storage for the next two years maybe probably yeah we'll we'll see what happens with uh with the data growth i think i was optimistic i think i will i'll i will last a while with my eight ports nas Mm. yeah it is a funny feeling you get oh and now i'm using 3.5 terabyte out of the 12 yeah so <laughs> this morning I was just, should I buy another four gig, four terabyte drive? <laughs> no, so Michael, you shouldn't. No, no, exactly. You should wait until you're at 90. <laughs> 90%. I spoke to my inner Swede and he also said no. <laughs> <laughs> so are Swedes cheap in Danish terms? No. Sensible, I would oh, say. okay. Yeah, now you're trying to, yeah. to, uh, to make me feel good instead i like it i hope you do that because uh, that was the tech stuff for today now we're going into process and gtd so jens would you like to introduce our guest for today i'll do that today we have a dear and special guest and as david letterman would say in his next week's show my next guest needs no introduction but uh, for a few listeners who are not aware of David Allen's background and accomplishment. David is the creator and father of GTD, the Getting Things Done methodology, and the 
BGD book that has been printed in millions of copies. He has also done frequent interviews, blog posts, seminars, events, and one-on-one coaching and spread the methodology over the world for more than 35 years. Today, it's possible to get official Getting Things Done training and coaching in 74 countries around the world in 25 languages and participate in communities driven by GTD practitioners. David has done all this while also helping thousands of people, including your three hosts, having control and perspective in a world that offers rapid change, often outside our own control and increasing stress level. Welcome to our podcast, David. Thanks, yes. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Always always happy to talk you know, about this stuff, and I'm pretty transparent, as you'll probably find out. <laughs> so. I think we are quite used to the transparency, so we look forward to that even in this interview. So I think we should start this off by actually going back to the beginning of GTD because I've heard some stories about it, but I haven't heard, you know, everything. Um, so I, I know that you were working as a productivity consultant, weren't you? Well, yeah. Once I decided that uh, I wanted to work by myself, and I found out with all the different jobs I had that I just liked helping people improve their process, and so at some point I. I said, I guess well, I'll hang out my shingle and see if I can just sell myself on a project-by-project basis. So I, I created Allen Associates in 1982, before you guys were born, probably. I don't know. But, uh, ah, David. <laughs> long, long, time, long time ago. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's how I started. But I wouldn't have called myself a productivity consult, consultant. Uh, I was just I was just consulting from a business standpoint. You know, I, I was dealing with entrepreneurs and, and friends of mine that had their own small businesses and coming in and just helping them trying to figure out what they wanted to do. I guess in retrospect, you call it productivity because it was like, how much easier can we do what you're doing? <laughs> you know, and so you know that was my that was really my focus. But I also was exploring those techniques for myself. And so, you know, I'm a freedom guy. I'm into being free and not being distracted by stuff and, you know, having, enjoying, you know, clear space, the ability to be relaxed, you know, while I'm still having a busy life and lifestyle. So I uncovered a lot of the techniques that later on became GTD. We didn't call it GTD. That was just our shorthand once the book was published in 2001, which is what, you know, 20, you know, 20 years later, 20, no, 30 years later than 1982. Uh, we didn't call it GTD. That was our shorthand. And then GTD just became this kind of brand that ran out from under us. And because the book started being published internationally around the world, GTD started to become the way people you know, thought about what this was that I was writing about. So we kind of like, hmm, okay, because we never really did any marketing uh, with the work that I was doing. It was just following our nose and all referral-based kind of doing i you know i i found myself thrust into the corporate training world because some senior guy you know at lockheed back in 83 1983 and 84 saw what i was doing and he said david can you take what you're doing and, and build that into some sort of a program so we can give your methodology to a whole lot of people instead of just one-on-one so that's where that started so i found myself thrust into the corporate training world could have fooled me that that was where, but that was where that was the ripest audience for what i'd come up with they were the people hungriest especially the fast track professionals and the, the mid to senior level people in these organizations that back in the eighties were starting to go through major change, flattened organizations, lots of surprise, lots of new things going on. And that was when the, as that migrated into the nineties, when the tsunami of email started to hit the professionals. And so my stuff became real key for people trying to navigate, you know, in that kind of world. So could have fooled me. You know, come on, guys. I didn't. I I'm not particularly aspirational or entrepreneurial. <laughs> I was more of a researcher and an educator about this, and wanted to have a good job. You know, so you know, found something that was valuable to people. They were willing to pay for, but we didn't even think about scaling this. You know, in your introduction, you said this is now around the world. Yeah, that kind of could have fooled me. I, I always thought I had a, a sort of high aspiration that it might hit some sort of a nerve out there, but no expectations about how big it would be or if it even was going to be a bestseller at all. 
that was a big surprise. But it took me 20 years to figure out what I'd figured out <laughs> and that it was unique. Nobody else had done it. And so that's when I decided to write the book. And by that point, I had proved it was bulletproof because it had been tested and gone viral in some of the most challenging corporate environments you would ever see and ever be in. That if the stuff didn't stand toe to toe with some of the people, the best and brightest and busiest and most successful people on the planet, you know, their immune system would have spit you out a long time ago. But mine worked in that environment. So that gave me the confidence to go ahead and write the manual, which the first edition of GTD in 2001 was. How was that discovery for you personally when it became clear that GTD was actually something for very productive people, high rollers, but also for ordinary people? How was that journey for you? Yeah, well, I didn't wake up one morning with all that. It was like piece by piece. I knew this stuff worked from the time I uncovered some of the basic pieces for anybody. It worked for kids, worked for clergy, worked for entrepreneurs, it worked for executives, it worked for anybody. Mm. It, it was a bit surprising to me that I thought the, the more senior and sophisticated the professionals were, the less they'd be interested in this because they should have already figured it out. Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> the more sophisticated the people were, the hungrier they were for this. So interestingly, I mean, I guess the biggest surprise was over the years, the people most attracted to what I came up with are the people who need it the least. They're already the most productive, organized, focused, aspirational people you'd ever meet. Smart, too. They just ran out of room. You know, they knew they could create success because they already had. They knew organization was a critical element. They knew, they knew, and they knew systems were critical. And they knew, you know, so they knew a lot of the good stuff already. They just needed help in expanding their ability to keep going and to expand their ability to do more with less. So that was I, probably my biggest surprise, guys, was that, that just, you know, I've had the, the good fortune. You guys are probably in that category. Probably people around you, when you started to get GTD, said you're the last person in the world. You think that they like, should need this. Because you were probably already organized, you were probably already productive, already you know, had a successful life and lifestyle. I was not. I was a mess <laughs> when I discovered GTD. <laughs> well, that's I, I understand that you know your your, your humility is 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 uh, you wear it well. And I probably came from the other direction. I think I was pretty organized, but I mean, you, you get up to a certain level when you're head just doesn't cope anymore and you need to get it out. And I was on the verge of being burned out as many other I've talked about. And I got the tip that write lists, that's fantastic. And of course, I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I needed a tool to handle those lists. So I uh, looked around and this was way before the, the iPhone. So we still were using a, a old PC and I found a Wikipedia article about getting things done. And that's how I then bought the book and, and started to use it. And, and my thought was like, wow, why didn't I learn about this earlier? That would have changed so much for me. Uh, so, so it was like, a, I still remember that feeling when I understood the power of GTD. And I can't truly really understand how, how I could live without it before. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So yeah. if, if we look back, we have the, the five steps. And I mean... You're a really smart guy, but I, I don't get you credit to figuring them out themselves. You've probably gotten inspired by other people and other places and then actually done the brilliant thing to put it all together into to a methodology. Um, how, what, what was the first things and how, how did this crystallize into like a, a full set of things that you put together? Well, I think I, I, yeah, I've mentioned it many times. Oh, the first thing, hard to say what the first thing was. You know, I got involved in personal growth trainings. I was a facilitator in insight seminars, which is, you know, one of those intensive five day, you know, grow yourself kind of things in the, in California in the seventies and eighties. And I got involved with that. And one of the features of that was understanding the role of agreement keeping in your life. What happens when you make an agreement and don't keep it? What happens when you make an agreement and do keep it? And the price you pay for broken agreements is the disintegration of trust. And so the whole idea of making agreements and then not being able to keep them then starts to undermine your own sense of self-confidence and your own sense of, you know, worth really in a, in a, in a, in a subtle way. And so that was the first part 
And then, so how do you manage agreements? Well, you know, you, you either uh, don't make them. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Keep them. Oh, I made that commitment. Let me go do that. Or the third option was renegotiate them. And that the renegotiation says, okay, I said I was going to meet you on Friday at three o'clock, but I, I suddenly had a dental appointment that had, I had to go to. So can we rearrange that? So I didn't break the agreement. I renegotiated the, the agreement, which kept my self-esteem, which kept me from undermining myself. So uh, agreement keeping was a, probably a first component to this. Only in retrospect can I say that GTD ultimately is about that. It's about all about agreement keeping with yourself. A lot of them include other people. Yeah, I told my boss I would. I told my wife I would. I told my kids I would. I told myself I would. And so, you know, understanding that what that inventory was. So that was a key component to begin with as an ingredient to what ultimately became, you know, what what became GTD. Another one was completion. Mm-hmm. The price you pay or what happens when you don't close a loop, because that has a lot to do with the agreement, Skull. And I've got an open loop. Here's an incomplete thing. You know, and how good it feels when you complete a complete thing. Yeah. But that it doesn't have to be completed to still feel good about it as long as you're appropriately engaged. Now, that's something I didn't have words for or a concept for early on. But that ultimately was what a lot of this, the value of this showed up to be, was doing that. So, you know, I got uh, attracted into those things and then ran across a guy that I was a mentor of mine and he and I were colleagues and and collaborated when I first started my consulting practice, a guy named Dean Atchison, not the famous one who was a politician, but uh, anyway, Dean became a good friend. He ran across me. I brought him a client and he had a great model about organizational change that he was using to work with organizations, mostly mid to small to medium sized organizations that had a lot to do with, okay, given where you're going, how do you need to restructure your organization in order to be able to then really get there? And you're thinking, and so Dean had come up with some techniques, valuable techniques, because Dean had discovered early on in his consulting and coaching, we didn't call it coaching back then, but it's in consulting with executives who wanted to make change in their companies. He found them constipated in their head because they had so many open loops and so many incomplete things, they couldn't focus. Mm. <laughs> so he uncovered this technique called get them to have them sit down and get everything out of their head on separate pieces of paper. This is way before the digital world. And then go through each one of those pieces of paper you know, and to say, okay, what's the next action on this? So Dean taught me about how to empty your head and then make next action decisions about the things you've got out of your head. And as you know, those are still core, yeah. you know, competencies in terms and part of GTD. But this is 19, 1982, 83, you know, that I uncovered those from Dean. And then he and I did a lot of work together for a couple of years. We worked with several clients and, you know, I brought him a client. And so he said, David, look, I'll hand off to you my methodology just because of the help you've given me in, in his business. And so I wound up sitting shoulder to shoulder with Dean and, and working through what we called a, and by the way, that was that was not the essence of his organizational change. It was a it was a critical criteria to make organizational change it was to get people's heads clear and to have a good trusted communication system, so that they if something was a next action and they needed to either delegate it or ask somebody about it, they'd write a memo about it and put it in their out basket, and that would go into the system and actually get handled. You know, and so. That was the prior thing that needed to be set up in the organization. And then, you know, we'd sit down with the senior team and say, we'd do the purpose and vision. And, and then, you know, what are the outputs of the organization? And then how do we build a, rebuild an organization chart that's based on outputs, not on hierarchies? And so, you know, I, I learned role-based thinking with Dean in 1982, you know, and holacracy and all those other things are just you know, sort of the self-organizing stuff that's showing up these days. It's just, yeah. <laughs> that's the basis of it. But I, I, I've been doing that for 40 years, you know, essentially. So there's a short version of a very long story, but would, did that sort of address what you were talking about or what you asked me? I, I think so. I, I answered a lot of questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm always really eager to hear about the, the stories, what led to things. Uh, because sometimes it's just the small, subtle things that 
in the long run makes a big difference. Yeah, uh, I did come up with the idea of projects and role-based organization, you know, for yourself. Yeah. And as well as the review and reflection process. So the, of the five steps, you know, Dean taught me the, the capture and a portion of the clarify step. Uh, organize, yeah. You know, we had people just organize the pieces of paper into file folders. So yeah. they could start to structure These are all the calls I need to make, or these are the things that have to do with this project or whatever. And we had people self-organize. Once they got that stuff out of their head, decided all the next actions, which they write on the piece of paper or stick a post-it on the piece of paper, then we had them say, okay, take this whole pile and you organize them like you think they ought to be organized for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to organize these because these are financial things or these are personal things or these are whatever. And then we just gave them file folders and they just label the file folders <laughs> and they stuck those pieces of paper in those file folders. And then, you know, the, then the coaching was, okay, at the end of the day or the start of the day, go through all those folders, pull out the ones that are, that you absolutely have to do right away or as soon as possible and then create a kind of hot folder for the day. So, you know, how could you beat that? <laughs> you know, that and that, that's essentially, you know, I've got very sophisticated GTDers that go through all their lists the night before, then create a little card. <laughs> it says, here's the three things I'm going to do tomorrow out of all that, yeah. unless things change. And they have the freedom to be able to have things change. You know, just like they have the freedom to create their hot folder and move stuff in and out of that based upon the change in, in life. But, you know, that's a very sophisticated way to manage your workflow. Uh, and I learned, so, so a lot of these keys, you know, had seeds planted with me and with this stuff you know, way, way many years ago. I want to get back a little bit to the agreement keeping because you hit on a point for me where that was exactly my entry point into GTD. I started meeting colleagues and families that's just, you know, every time I said I would do something, you felt that, uh, yeah, well, you say that now, but it's not going to happen. And that was the entry point for me into GTD. And that was really an important epiphany for me to get that and see, okay, I really need to do something about keeping my appointments. So I spent years on yeah. working on the five steps, trying to get that under control. And it is, it's not something that you just decide to do on a Monday morning and then it works. Well, it will take you years and maybe you will never be complete in your ways of doing. You always need to improve and depending on who you are. Well, some, some people get it right away, not a lot. Mm -hmm. But some people are close to this already in terms of what they've learned in their own experiences. And they go, ah, oh, here's now a way I can see all of this as a total systematic mm. you know, process. That's why GTD became so big in the tech community. Because mm. tech people are almost as lazy as I am. <laughs> and their whole industry is based on improving people's output with less input. You know? And they love a closed system mm. that had no leaks in it. Because they're used to programming and they're used to not having bugs in the system. And there are no bugs in GTD. So GTD was actually the first non-tech meme that hit the tech world. And that's why it spread so fast globally was through the tech mm. world. Yeah. You know? And some of our biggest clients and some of the first departments when we were doing corporate training about this and still are, but some of the most hungry people were the operational people inside of an organization. And that, that includes tech and a lot of the other folks because they're not out there in the sales and the instant you know, da, 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 da. but they actually have projects and things they need to manage and systematically in terms of the organization. So this hit a nerve with them particularly. I mean, it works for everybody. I mean, the salesperson needs their own organization system like anybody else. Oh yeah. In order to really, you know, you know survive and, and, and make it work. We do. And the entry point for me was very much the areas of focus and responsibility that really started to do. And then when I was introduced to the natural planning model uh, and worked with that, <laughs> I found out that, okay, I can actually use this model when I do sales to clients. The natural planning model is the little sleeper inside of GTD. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it, 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 and you know the story of how I figured, you probably heard me talk about how I figured that out. Give it again. I was saying, well, when I got into this and I started getting into the corporate training world or whatever, and, and people were, so many people were involved in project management. So people had projects and they needed to manage. And I said, as a consultant, I should probably have some good idea about how to help people manage projects. 
So I looked around and did a little bit of research to say, what are the project management seminars? What are the project management models out there? And then I started to talk to the HR people in some of these organizations, the big organizations, Fidelity in, in, in Boston and uh, Lockheed, whatever. I said, who have you found? What kind of a project management seminar have you found that really works? And mm-hmm. oh, we don't have one. We don't have one. Mm-hmm. Now, the exception to that would be large organizations that had multi-million, if not billion-dollar projects where they had built in their own internal project management templates that they said, you know, here's the new plane we need to build. Here's our whole critical path and all that kind of stuff. So this wasn't about that. It was about people that more informally, how do I manage projects? And I never saw any, nobody had anything that seemed to be universal. And if you guys have probably figured it out, I'm so lazy. I didn't want to have to figure out a new model for every different client. What can I figure out that work for everybody? So that I didn't have to change what I said (laughs) for for whatever I did. So I I said, okay, so what is the basic principle of project management? Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it took me hours or days or weeks to sit there and think about this and just reflect on this. I go, well, wait a minute. We're planning all the time. You planned how to get dressed. You guys planned how to do this seminar. You you're planning what to say next, Jens. Or, or <laughs> you, you guys are planning right now. You can't stop. If I ask you to stop planning, you start to plan how to do that. Exactly. So we seem to be a planning. We are a planning machine. So we're planning all the time. So I said, well, okay. What does that planning model look like? And I stepped back. I said, well, the first thing he says, okay. Well, I need to get dressed. Okay. Why? Well, because I'm going to go to a meeting and I need to look fine for the meeting. Okay, good. Now you got a purpose and you have some principles, right? So then, uh, then, then what? Well, my vision is I'm going to step, I'm going to, I'm going to look great when I walk in. I'm going to be appropriate. You know, that's not, I mean, I'm, people are going to up level their thinking of me based upon how I show up, you know, dress for success. Okay, great. Well, and so then what else is going to pop into your mind? Oh, should I wear that tie? Should I wear a tie or not? I don't know. Those shoes, that shoes, whatever. So what you're doing is you're essentially brainstorming or you're, or you're, or you're, you're surfacing and being aware of potentially relevant information relative to your purpose and your vision. Right. So then, then what do you go? Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the shoes I'm going to wear. Here's the pants I'm going to wear. Here's the tie I'm going to wear and here's whatever. In other words, you've now organized, you know, essentially your random thinking, relevant thinking and into some sort of a coherent format. And you say, what's the next step? Oh, put on the shirt. Shower. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> so I said, Jesus, that's what we're doing all the time. We're doing it constantly. I said, but okay. So let me just objectify those stages of what our natural planning process is. So I didn't. <laughs> there's a reason I call it the natural planning model because it is. That's how we do that. It's just, is the natural planning model the normal model? Eh, no, it's not. <laughs> well, that's what's really weird. But it is also what is so uh, fantastic with the natural planning model is that you can take an area of focus like your children, my children, and say, what is actually the desired outcome? What are the projects that we need to do? And you can look at that and you can actually get some very personal discussions with your children or your loved ones or your colleagues. And you can yeah. use that model. And that is extremely powerful. And I think that you can use it for work, but you can definitely also use the NPM module in your private life, which is yeah. the other part of ourselves. Well, and to that, to that point, since we're talking to a pretty mature GTD audience out there, a lot of people have said, well, how do you deal with the emotional aspects of what all this is about? I said, I don't. <laughs> because the emotional aspects, and not that they're not important. Oh, no, they are. Emotional intelligence and all that good stuff called why that. But, you know, I don't care what your mother did with you when you were four years old. What are you doing with that piece of paper on their desk? And they suddenly start to get in the driver's seat of their life as opposed to blaming mom for the fact that they've got a bunch of chaos in their life. So. I know that's a simplistic way to kind of condense why I say I'm not focused on the emotional side, because what you just expressed was a lot of the emotional aspects that could have disturbed those relationships in your family got handled by a cognitive process that made this stuff more concrete, more objective, 
and you didn't have a lot of those other things creeping into your psyche because you had a nice closed system internally of how you dealt with it. And then how you dealt with it, how you, how you thought, what you decided, and then what you did with that affected the emotional states of you and everybody around you a lot more than trying to just deal with the emotional states around you. Exactly. And you get the model from, from D2D and NPM, but the work you do is basically, you know, if you decide you have to write your history or, you know, explain your children, that is basically outside of D2D, but the process and the model... Well, it's not, but you have an outcome called, hey, yeah. I need to get create a new relationship with my kids. Exactly. That's GTD. That's a project, right? Or a goal, you know, however you want to do it at whatever horizon you want to label that thing. And then what's the next step? Yeah. Oh, well, I think I need to write down. Maybe here's a way we can approach that or whatever. So it GTD gives you a, a, a powerful approach to emotional issues mm-hmm. or issues that showed up that had emotions tied to them, that you don't have to go into the emotional side of things to try to piece it out. Because even if you did, you're not going to piece it out until you handle the other stuff. So you handle the, the, the cognitive decision-making and essentially getting yourself to a viewpoint that can then manage these things appropriately. You know, and, and in retrospect, I didn't, but guys, I, I did not wake up one morning and go, oh, we're going to be dealing with desired outcomes that people have and have them appropriately engage with how they're engaged with all of those outcomes as subtle as they may be. <laughs> This was many years later discovering that people using this methodology created that result and then sort of reverse engineering about how come that happened. And how does this perspective ties into how GTD developed Horizon of Focus model? Well, that was another one of those, okay, I'm now a consultant. By the way, I never had any traditional education in time management business or psychology. So maybe because I had no preconditioning about any of this. I just said, okay, what works here? Because people say, how do I set priorities? How do I set priorities? How do I set priorities? And I don't know if this is hours, days, or weeks it took me to sit down and think about this. Say, well, let's think about how we do set our priorities. So I didn't, I wasn't into making something up that people should do. I was into uncovering what we actually do, you know, when things work. And so that's all I did. And I, I tried to get it as simple as I could, but I couldn't get any simpler than the six horizons about that you have commitments. You know, you've got some internal commitment, whether you're conscious of it or not, about what you're doing on the planet and how you're doing, you know, what really matters to you in terms of your standards. Those are there. I didn't make the. I didn't tell you to have those. You've got them, right? Whether you're conscious about them or not. And I said, yeah, but is that going to help you write an email? Well, no, there's another vision that you have because, you know, both you guys may have similar purposes, but you've got a very different vision of what it would be like when you fulfill that purpose successfully, right? Yes. I want to help people. Great. How could you do it? I could be a doctor. I could be a teacher. I could be a consultant. I could be, you know, yeah. So the vision of your manifestation of that thing is an, is the next driver operationally of your priorities. And then I said, okay, once you have that, then what do you have? Well, then you're going to have to figure out what am I going to need to do to be a consultant or to be a teacher, or to be a doctor or to help people, you know, whatever. So then you got some objectives at some more operational level, you know, the next three to 24 months. What do you think you need to do or finish? What are your commitments with yourself about that? And then it's like, okay, in order to be able to get there, do you have any commitments about making sure you've got a healthy enterprise or person? Oh, yeah, I need to make sure I handle finances and my health and vitality is fine. Or operationally, I need to make sure we've got quality control and customer service. Yeah, so those were the areas of focus. I said those also drive priorities, is making sure that those areas of focus are intact or at least up to some standard so that you trust you can get where your, your goals. Right. Then I said, and what are all the, what's all the stuff you got to finish about all that? Oh yeah. I got to hire a vice president or think we should, or should, should we get divorced or should we hire a doctor? Or should we adopt? Or, you know, Oh yeah. Now you got a bunch of stuff about all those things that you need to finish that you've already decided you need to do. So I just identified, objectified that, all those things I need to finish that I can't, finish in the moment, but that I want to get finished in the next few months. Right. And then what do you need to do about any of those open loops about any of that stuff? Oh yeah. I need to write that email or I I need to then surf that website or I need to talk to my life partner about X, Y, and Z. Ah, we got an action level. So I didn't make these up. I just identified them. I just couldn't compress them any further than this because your action list is very different than your list of your vision. 
your vision is very different than your job responsibilities and your life areas of focus. So I couldn't condense them. And most of the time management stuff condensed all this stuff. And then that's why it explodes for people. doesn't work. So we, I just had to unpack this as best I could, but as simple as I could. And I couldn't, if somebody could show me a simpler way to set your priorities, I'd teach it. (laughs) It'd be in the next book. But it is the simplicity in GTD. It is really simple to read. It is very hard to do, but it is what makes it work in both professional life and your private life for you as a whole person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these models of these six horizons have to have to integrate together. Mm-hmm. And that makes it even more complex yeah. because your business or your work has purpose, vision, you know, outcomes, you know, areas of focus and, and projects and actions, as well as your personal life. And so you've got all those together. So having some sort of a gestalt or matrix where you can see the whole game at any point in time, therefore, the weekly review is your salvation. It is. Totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) Assuming you've done all that work before, even if you did all that thinking, which is valuable thinking, and the world doesn't show up giving you this data, wouldn't it be nice if you woke up in the morning and somebody gave you the menu of your six horizons? You know? For, for that day, given the 16 emails you got last night that are going to blow the hell out of what you think your next actions and projects are. Doing the weekly review is basically the clarity that you get when you, if you do it on a Friday like I do. I can really go to a weekend because I get that empty space in my head. Yeah, and not only that, you probably get some very cool ideas that happen yes. when you see people sort of misunderstand. They think this is just some static process where you're just kind of catching up and punching holes or whatever. Mm. But I, I've never done a weekly review without coming up with some cool idea that I needed to add to my list or my inspiration. Because you can't step back and move up into that higher horizon and then start to engage appropriately with all your commitments without coming up with some new ideas because the world's changed. And you're a more mature person this week than you were last week. Sorry, you are. Yeah, I had a conversation with Mr. Rövik from Norway at some point about identifying the cool and creative ideas after your weekly review. And and we talked about that. I was a bit stuck on that. And then he just gave me that very simple suggestion on that step, put on your boots and go in the park round the castle, put yourself out of the normal context, get away from the computer. And then it suddenly happens, but still it is that step. And then stuff needs just to float through your brain, rather than just make a note on a, on a slip of paper. Yeah. And I wrote something about this, or I made a little, short video about this too, that the evening reflection, yeah. you know, where you sit down, you know, I've, I've always got my note taker wallet with me when I close, shut down the TV, uh, yeah. you know, get a good glass of wine and turn the lights down and the dogs have been put to bed. My wife's been put to bed or whatever. And I'm just sitting there. That's some of the most creative time that I have. I'm doing a, I'm doing a, I'm kind of a cleaning up, you know, and a closing up what happened during the day. Mm-hmm. But then invariably stuff shows up. It's, I don't have a plan. I don't have a template to think about it. I just, I just let it happen. If it happens, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got a few notes in there. You're seeing GTD grow the communities around the GTD grown around the world. You created this GTD summit first time in the U S and 10 years later in Amsterdam. Was a, a different audience, or did the communities look different ten years apart? The people weren't different in terms of the style and level of consciousness that they brought to the table. The difference was just the expansion of how many <laughs> and the scale and the and the scope of how many people at what different levels yeah. and their ability to bring to that you know their experience and to have such an incredibly fantastic you know, crew that put all this, put that summit together. Catherine was like, I said, I think I need to do a summit. I, you know, I got Paul Sappho in, in the U S you know, great futurist guy teaches UCLA. He was one of our speakers and he was in the first summit. He said, David, don't do another one. This was so unique. (laughs) You don't want to create some sort of a template. He said, this needs to be its own sort of unique event. And it was. So I sort of wrote that off. Like, I'm not, not going to do another. I'm not trying to build this in that way, aspirationally or entrepreneurially. I just said that was a stake we needed to put in the ground. 
Of course, we lost a quarter of a million dollars doing it because it happened in 2008, 2009. Ooh. We already had the hotel commitment and nobody was traveling. And so we lost a ton of cash. But the PR value you couldn't buy, you know, that we got from that. So anyway, 10 short, long story short, 10 years later, Catherine and I are sitting in a cafe here in Amsterdam. And I said, you know, it's 10 years later. And we had, by that time, we had such a global community that had started to show up against a lot of GTD pirates that were showing up around the world. You know, that we said, just to protect the brand and to protect the quality of what this GTD is really about, how about, how how about we do this? And she goes, oh my God, you know, because she, you know, she's been on the back end and knows how much work this stuff is and what it takes to put on something like that. But then we, you know, we contacted our, our friend Boris, who runs the Dex Web, probably one of the most successful conferences in Europe. Mm. And uh, we said, Boris, what do we do? Can you help us out? He said, no, but I know a guy who can. And so he turned us on to two guys, actually, that were very key in making the next web successful as a conference. And we brought them on. And they said, hey, yeah, let's play. And they are the ones who really put this thing together and created an extraordinary event. Mm extraordinary visually auditorially and whatever and then you know i got a raft of speakers that were willing to come on their own dime and talk about gtd from their perspective or talk about their stuff that related to it and you know we had an audience of a thousand people you know that came from around the world so it was a pretty significant event for me it's like wow you know how cool is that and so again the difference was there's the scale and the scope of the people involved in this. And uh, thank goodness it happened the year before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> you timed it well this time. <laughs> yeah, intuition, you got you to trust it. You had a, had a little bit of unluck, haven't you, with uh, different type of releases in the history, thinking of the books. Yeah, yeah. well, sometimes <laughs> 2001 came out before 9-11. Uh, I, ready for, I don't know. Two or three of the books happened right before the crash. Yeah. I think uh, making it all work came right before the crash. So I said, probably the best thing I should do is never write another book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, say, they seem to be tied to significant events you know, going on in the world out there. So, uh, you know, that are not so fun. Now, uh, both me and Jens was in, in Amsterdam and it was uh, a fantastic event, uh, definitely. I was so surprised with all the people. And there is something with GTDers. They are, it's a fantastic band of people. They are so humble and so easy to. I know, God, I've been, I've been so blessed, Martin, to have this thing attract the coolest people in the world. Mm. Yeah. So the, the network of people I have, every one of them, I could, you know, I could say, God, I could, I could have dinner with you and love it. You know? They're good people. Uh, right. And, and learn something from you, you know, and such a wide range. Yeah. You know, Julie Flagg, our OBGYN doctor from Connecticut. Yeah. You know, her presentation was just one of the best. You know, she talked about the GTD. She doesn't give herself a treat after her weekly review. She does a yeah, pre-treat. A gin and tonic. gin and tonic <laughs> before she does you know, That's the kind of style, you know, of yeah. the people that are in this game with us. So, yeah. And I'm sure you guys are. I'm sure you guys are too. <laughs> That's one of the stories I always do when I do trainings or coaching. When we talk about GTD and that you should, uh, or the weekly review, and that you need to celebrate when you're done. That celebrate a little bit before and a little bit more when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, David, we have talked a little bit about where GTD comes from. Where are GTD going? What's your thoughts about the future for for GTD? Well, I'm still willing to take advantage of any opportunity to create a world in which people perceive problems as projects. Mm. Talking to you, doing whatever we need to do. Uh, You know, Ed Lamont in London and I are now co-authoring the GTD for Teams book that Penguin just contracted for us to do. And it's brilliant. Ed's such a brilliant writer. If you guys read his podcasts and and so forth, he's, he's brilliant about this. So... We're excited about that because that's been a big missing piece. People say, I got this. How do I get people around me to get this? Life would be so much better. Yeah. yeah. And we've never really had a good template or a good model or a good manual about what to do about that. And so that's what this is going to be. 
So that's the next, you know, kind of GPD-esque product that's going to show up. But otherwise, you know, I just take advantage of the, the opportunities that, that that show up. I, I, I'm interesting because I, I I haven't been, I don't go promote myself in terms of my stuff to do. I mean, in 2021, I wasn't asked, I didn't do any keynotes, you know, or anything. But I think I did a, a virtual keynote or two. But now it's kind of picked up again. Yep. So I'm doing a keynote for Mass General, Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, I'm going to do a keynote for, you know, I've just been asked to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to do one for Sage Software out of the UK, big accounting software mm-hmm. firm yeah, yeah. Uh, that the, the founder found GPD in 2001 when he was just starting to start the company to keep him sane. And he's still a huge advocate. And so he said, you know, I need, I need David Allen to do a remote virtual thing for our senior team. You know, coming up. So I'm, I'm still getting those kinds of. I'm now getting those kinds of things back again. The world's kind of waking up after the pandemic in many ways, and so yeah. So I I, I don't know that I could stop. I mean, again, I'm 76, so uh, I don't know how long this engine's going to keep running. But until it does, I couldn't I couldn't stop. How could I ever stop? Somebody asked, "How can I make my life better?" I said, "Well, what's on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> how about you get your How about you get your head clear so you can then think about that in a more objective way right? instead of being so reactive mm-hmm. so w- why would you guys ever stop telling anybody about this in any way so i guess that's the bad and good news and where it's going and we continue to talk about gtd and now trying to get gtd summer camp on, on the right track in denmark a little bit more participant than last year a little bit bigger place than last year a little more countries coming through the event cool good for you by the way if you guys want if you want to clip and if you want to take any clips of this conversation and use them there if i can't show up you're welcome to so thanks we will probably do that if if you allow (laughs) us to (laughs) as the only guy who was not in amsterdam i had to come up with the idea of the danish summer camp as a small patch for (laughs) for not being in amsterdam and no, it's great. I mean, when two or more get together, bigger things happen. Yeah. You know, I I discovered that years ago, and so you know, yay! If you create, just create the the right context and the right energy, yeah. then the magic happens. Yeah, it will. And it's growing thirty percent in participants, right? From a very low number, but uh, it's still thirty percent, and uh, more people talking about it. And yay! Good work. Thank you, guys. Next year we have a tradition. This year it's a repetition. Next year it's three times. It will be the third, and then it's a tradition <laughs> that we need to stick to. So that's cool. Oh, that's funny. I love that. First edition, rendition, tradition. tradition exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now and then I watch a lot of YouTube, and I find the good content. I also come across uh, some GTDs in India, which speaks a lot to me on their approach to GTD, the way they talk, the way they treat it. So yeah, they're smart guys. They're smart guys. And I also know that GTD is getting huge traction in Asia. What is the influence and the differences you see in the adoption of practice or the way that people approach GTD? Is there any different approaches from the different cultures around the world? I don't have enough data to make any definitive conclusion about that. Mm. The only data I can say is that the people attracted to it are the same kind of people around the world, and there's no difference. Mm in terms of their interest. Mm. How many of people and what kind of people are attracted to it may be different in the cultures, but again, I don't have enough data to, to make any conclusion about that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in hmm. you know, there are little tiny tweaks that are kind of fun. The Italians go, hey, you know, or the Spanish, yeah. you know, so the Southern Mediterranean, who needs to be do more work or whatever. Yeah. And at the same time, there's as much interest that Luca has developed in in Italy um, as anywhere else. Yeah. You know, to, and people going, I know we're so such a lazy culture, and we need to get our act together. And so there's a still a there's still a there's still the same interest yeah. for the same level of people and professionals around the world that I've seen. I haven't seen any difference really at all. Mm-hmm. But again, still a small, you know, I'm still relatively small as an enterprise against this. A lot of it has to do, by the way, with the translation of the book into different languages. Mm. 
if the book is badly translated, just the stuff stuff doesn't go anywhere. People don't have a good context to be able to. The better the translations are, the more there is interest in that culture for people to go, oh, this makes sense and whatever. So, you know, we've had to migrate in the second edition, we, we got Penguin to agree to us and said, before you, before you agree to publish anything in the new language, we need to have someone who's familiar with GTD to do a final edit yeah. to make sure this comes out okay. Yeah. So we should have been much bigger in Japan, but they had a really shitty translation. Or not such a bad translation, but the publisher didn't have any interest in trying to, trying to promote it or trying to, do, trying to support the training that was good that was starting to go on there. Uh, that, that that's a factor, not so much about the culture, but so much about how we were engaging with the culture mm. and what our interface was that made the difference in the uptake. Mm. Some of the stuff that we have been working on, both Jens and Martin and me a lot, is both GTD, but also the Kairos Cognition Test. What are your thoughts about the Kairos Cognition Test in relationship of GTD? Depends on how interested you are in doing GTD better. Mm. Kairos by itself, if somebody's not aware of GTD, could be valuable. It really depends on who the person is and how they would use that information. For instance, if you're a boss and you have somebody take the Kairos and they're a high talker, you know, being aware that you're dealing with a high talker, so you give them room to talk, to think through their stuff, as opposed to feeling frustrated that they're taking so much time and not getting to the point, that's a minuscule but a very helpful <laughs> thing you can get mm. from what this is about. If you have somebody who's a high engager, where they're high essentially on all of those aspects, they can't stop. They're the ADD-esque you know, kind of people that are just spinning all the time and just being aware that either that's me, so I'm just aware that that's what's going on. Mm. So there's a lot of awareness that can show up, but you have to be pretty sophisticated, I think, to really leverage the value out of that. Depends on Depends on what you're doing. You know, Meg discovered a long time ago that if people are ADD or ADHD, or if they have a high associative component as opposed to sequential, that sometimes the computer is just too frustrating and time consuming for them. They need a paper-based system, you know, because uh, years ago, by the way, you know, a colleague of mine who helped create our first version of a software that we tried to promote, he, he had the data he was a very sophisticated guy in the early web days. He said, every click, you lose 60% of your audience. <laughs> so if you have to get two clicks to get to what you think your customer wants, you just lost 60% of them. So the more clicks you have to get to what you think you need and want to see, the less you're going to be engaged in it. That's why the paper-based systems for some people is better because it's instant. It's right in front of their face. They don't have no clicks, no batteries, no Wi-Fi or whatever. It's right there. Mm. And so for some people, based upon how they, you know, what their cognitive process is, that's a more effective way to actually implement GTD. They have some version of an instantly in your face, you know, kind of a way to see the stuff in and out. But Meg could, could talk more to that than me. So you might want to do an interview with Meg, you know, about Kairos and about, you know, and about the, the process or with even Frank, he'd probably be happy to do yeah, it. I, I did my... Uh... Kairos uh, survey while I was doing my GTD training to become a trainer. And I had Frank mm -hmm. talking me through the, the results. And that is a, a fascinating thing to, to do because he could really tell some of my traits and, and how I, I work that I, I actually didn't think anyone could spot by just looking at a, like a test so and it's also something yeah. we use in the coaching so it's it's such a good thing to understand okay what signs do we need to look for i mean if someone is a high engager you definitely need to be aware of that so you can can switch feet quickly if you see that they are losing focus or they want to do something else so so it's a really really fantastic tool yeah and if they're a high mover you know don't sit down with them longer than yeah. 30 minutes before they get to move around, you know. <laughs> and if they're a high listener, they love GTD on audio. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, a lot of that's very useful stuff. And interesting because, Frank, you know, if you compare this to the DISC model or Myers-Briggs or whatever, I mean, he's got a lot of data that those things are pretty shallow mm -hmm. relative to your real cognitive processes and how you function and operate. And so 
you know, you know, Frank's a great resource, you know, in that regard. I did my first MCB test, my Briggs type indicator, 30 years ago, and I'm still in ENFP. <laughs> it's not going to change. <laughs> and uh, that is what it is. I'm an, EN, I'm an INTP. I could imagine that. Yeah. I'm not that extrovert, David. The thing is that if you start to use these models when you work, be it Kairos or MBT or let's agree that it's a good idea to find your opposite. It's good for an extrovert to work with an introvert or and, and, you know, yeah. put your teams together that yeah, way man. and be aware of it when you go into a project at least, right? If you have an idea. No, smart. That can certainly improve the outcome. But Michael, it may not be that good for the introvert. I don't know. <laughs> but introverts rule the world and will. Yeah. So They're not the lemmings as I am as an ENFP. <laughs> I've seen... DTD presented from different sources and uh, quite gender neutral. Do you see any difference in, in how men or women are attracted to GTD or children for that sake? You know, there's been a much bigger male audience than female audience to GTD for sure. You know, I understand that. And that's interesting to try to understand. I don't know that I have a, a, a real uh, cogent conclusion, uh, you know, about why that is. I think women are not so willing to stand up and say something in an external way, you know, conclusively. They're much more passive in that regard as a gender. And so they're not willing to be on a podcast or they're not willing to be on interview and they're not willing to, you know, talk about their stuff or express it in some way. And a lot of the men are. Hey, let me go add this thing. Let me go add this thing. Let me go talk about this. Let me go talk about that. So there, I think there is a somewhat of a gender bias in that regard in terms of how they express what they are, what they're doing, and what they're about. But I think depending upon the culture, depending upon the gender roles, as people have been conditioned to think about those, a lot of women think about themselves much like executive assistants do. I'm supposed to handle all this already. Or they already feel like they've handled this already because they've managed three kids and their schools and their soccer team and the, and the, and buying the groceries and cooking and whatever. And the guy's been out there being freewheeling and doing whatever he's doing. So they have a much more of a sense of, uh, you know, and again, this is a huge generalization and probably, I don't know how accurate it is, but uh, from my own experience anyway, you know, women to some degree feel like they've handled their life in an organizational way better than men. Or men are willing to say, "Yeah, I, I, I'm freewheeling. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm going out. I'm being expressive. I'm being, you know, more external mm. in terms of what I'm doing." And therefore, give me some help to get there. Mm. And they may be more focused in terms of, you know, creating new outcomes for themselves, new projects for themselves, new professional positions for themselves. But as you know, talking to Meg and talking to Kelly, talking to anybody, I mean, come up women. As, as I've got as many women entrepreneurs, by the way, that are GTD or, you know, that, that you can count on many hands that love this because it helps them do what they do. So yeah. I don't see any gender difference in terms of their ability to recognize the value, but their interest in the value, I think, is different. Mm. And having GTD uh, as a couple and share the areas of responsibilities just writing that down and being able to see, oh, you handle the kids, you handle the food, you handle the all that uh, and your job. Oh, and I handle shoveling snow and taking care of the grass. So maybe we should change the things a bit. Maybe. Or have a conversation about should we? Yeah. Is that okay? But at least understanding that you are running, you are playing different roles. Are you taking the garbage out, dear, or am I? Are you responsible for the dogs or am I? And Catherine still have that. We still have ambiguity about that because we kind of both handle all of that. But I mainly handle garbage and she mainly handles the dogs. But I oftentimes you know, have to do dogs or need to or want to. And she sometimes she deals with garbage because she wants to. She wants to. So, But having that as a conversation context is quite valuable. Mm. Say, gee, dear, are you going to handle this or me? But, of course, Catherine and I both have our own in-baskets. And, you know, she asked me for something. I just put it in her in-baskets so she can deal with it when she wants to. So yeah. you know, we've done, you know, come on. She met me at a GTD. Or we didn't call it GTD then, but she met me at a seminar I was doing. And, gee, 
1970, I don't know, in the 70s, late 70s or whatever. She was running a, uh, she and her husband at the time were running a Insight Seminars, you know, uh, office in New York. But, and because Insight Seminars, which was the personal growth seminar I was you know, involved in, required people who were in that organization to take my seminar. Mm-hmm. So she and I met in that seminar and then we were friends for years. And then finally she came over and started to work with the company I was in in LA. And then we got together. Mm-hmm. So she's done this stuff. We don't even think about that. We just do. Okay. But it's still something that we still have to navigate and still have to work with. So it's not like you suddenly put this stuff, you know, you bake cake with the icing on it and it's all done. No, no, no. It's a constant conversation because, or, you know, one of my newer concepts, I think, is organization is an organic process. It's not a static one. Everything you thought was important last week may not be important this week. Mm. So what you did with it last week may be not the right place for it this week. So being organized is something that has to keep up with the flow of your life's work. And so how often do you need to purge your files? How often do you need to clean your desk drawer? How often do you need to? Because everything in your drawers, guy, the way guys belong there. Me too. <laughs> Every once in a while I go, that drawer is now out of control. Time to clean it up, mm. right? Because things are different. That was important to me then. Now I don't need it anymore. Out of here. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining, David. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah. And thanks, guys, for all the work you're doing GTD-wise. So, yay, keep it up. And I'll, I'll help however I can. Let me know. <laughs>